0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 1st edition of Work Comp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB gave applicants a second chance at filing an IMR appeal. Here's what happened in the panel decision of Tories versus Contra Costi Costa Schools Insurance Group and the State Compensation Insurance Fund. Christopher Torres injured his left knee while working for Contra Costa Schools Insurance Group as a claims examiner in 1998 and again in 2000. He was awarded 27% permanent disability and future medical care. After the award, the employer authorized duragesic patches and Norco prescribed by his PTP, Dr. Douglas Grant. However, after Dr. Grant requested authorization to refill additional prescriptions in June 2013, the defendant's UR physician conditionally denied certification for the duragesic patches. Applicant disagreed and submitted an application for IMR on August 2, 2013, and later sent the IMR organization an additional report by Dr. Grant concerning applicant's history and use of Duragesic patches. An IMR determination was sent back to applicant's attorney stating, without further explanation, that Duragesic patches were not medically necessary and appropriate. Applicant's attorney then filed an appeal of the IMR determination, claiming that the reviewer failed to review the new documents before making the determination. Although the IMR appeal was signed by the attorney, it was not verified. Therefore, the work comp judge issued a decision dismissing the IMR appeal for lack of verification. But the WCAB reversed the dismissal and remanded the case to allow applicant a second chance to file a verified appeal. Labor Code Section 4610.6 provides that an IMR appeal may be reviewed only after a verified appeal. That statutory verification requirement is consistent with Workers' Compensation Appeals Board Rules of Practice and Procedure Rule 10450. This rule, in turn, requires that all such petitions be verified under penalty of perjury. Applicant's IMR appeal includes no affidavit by either the applicant or his attorney verifying the contents of the appeal under penalty of perjury as required by Section 4610.6 and Rule 10450.7. Further, Rule 10450 plainly provides... That an unverified petition filed with the WCAB may be summarily dismissed. However, the panel noted that it has long been recognized that lack of verification does not necessitate automatic dismissal of a nonconforming pleading. Failure to correct a lack of verification within a reasonable time after receiving notice of the defect allows dismissal of the nonconforming petition. In this case, the defendant raised the issue of lack of a verification of the IMR appeal as an issue at the expedited hearing on January 9, 2014. However, applicant did not seek to cure the defect before the appeal was dismissed by the work comp judge for lack of a verification or at any time thereafter. Applicants' failure to timely cure the verification defect after receiving notice of it supports the work comp judge's dismissal of the IMR appeal. But the WCAB also recognized that the verification requirement in Section 4610.6 is relatively new and there is a strong public policy favoring the disposition of cases on their merits that is consistent with Article 14, Section 4 of the California Constitution to accomplish substantial justice in all cases. The panel ruled that if the applicant cures the defect within 20 days, the work comp judge should address the substance of the IMR appeal. And now our fraud report. 46-year-old Sunita Sugar, a former San Mateo County files clerk, was caught on video working at restaurants she owned while collecting disability for a supposed back injury. And for this, she was sentenced to 120 days in jail. But the Superior Court judge recommended that sheriff's officials instead confine and electronically monitor her inside her home over that period. Cigar was also placed on probation for three years. The felony fraud charge will be reduced to a misdemeanor after 18 months if she behaves. Cigar and her husband own multiple restaurant franchises in the Bay Area, including several Denny's, a Baja Fresh, and a Jack-in-the-Box, although none in San Mateo County. They also own a computer equipment store in Fremont. Cigar collected disability benefits from 2008 to 2012 for a back injury she reportedly sustained while working. She convinced doctors she was completely sedentary and could not conduct her daily activities and requested in-home care. But insurance fraud investigators caught Cigar. On hidden video, engaged in a very active lifestyle that included working at her businesses and walking and bending without any sign of discomfort. When her doctors were shown the video, they confirmed that a cigar had misrepresented her disability and was able to work. But her attorney continued to claim her innocence and said the videos do not prove she was working. The defense attorney said that the allegations were not ever tested because the case did not go to trial. The attorney claimed she indisputably spent time at the restaurants they owned, but she was not involved in the day-to-day operations. Segar was also ordered to pay restitution to the county of slightly more than $54,000. The Labor Enforcement Task Force, a multi-agency team of inspectors, conducted Operation Underground, a statewide enforcement action at construction work sites throughout California. Ten investigators from Cal-OSHA and the California Labor Commissioner's offices were deployed in Los Angeles, the Silicon Valley, Fresno, and the Inland Empire. The enforcement effort is focused on curbing practices common in the underground economy, including wage theft, tax evasion, and fraud. As a result, 81 citations with penalties of over $135,000 were issued and four work stop orders for failure to maintain workers' compensation coverage were given out. Inspectors found serious safety hazards, such as saws without safety guards, scaffolding, stairways, and an open skylight on a roof with no guardrails. Inspectors also found wage theft violations, including inadequate workers' compensation coverage, failure to pay overtime, and failure to provide pay stubs. The Labor Enforcement Task Force was formed in January 2012 to combat all industries that operate in the underground economy. The task force focused its resources on construction businesses due to the inherent danger and potential for labor violations. The Labor and Workforce Development Agency, the first cabinet-level agency coordinating workforce programs, oversees both the Labor Enforcement Task Force and the Joint Enforcement Strike Force headed by the Employment Development Department. The current enforcement efforts were coordinated by the California Department of Insurance. Convicted owners of Southern California DME companies have been sentenced for fraud and kickbacks. Edna Caliswatro, Let's try that again. Edna Callastro was sentenced to 24 months in prison and Mel Savadra was sentenced to three years probation for conspiracy to commit health care fraud, conspiracy to pay and receive kickbacks involving the Medicare program and health care fraud. At trial, the evidence showed that Patrick Sogbeen, the owner of Debs Medical Distributors in Van Nuys and his wife, The owner of Dignity Medical Supply, a Santa Clarita DME company, submitted over 400 false and fraudulent claims using fraudulent prescriptions and medical records prepared by Calistro. The evidence also showed that the two worked with Calistro, then a San Francisco-based physician and street-level recruiters. Medicare beneficiaries were recruited at locations in the Tenderloin and South of Market neighborhoods in San Francisco, including a fast food restaurant at the Powell Street Cable Car Turnaround and a Tenderloin Neighborhood Senior Center. After identifying beneficiaries, defendants went to the beneficiaries' homes with a portable copy machine, copied their Medicare cards, and conducted sham examinations to obtain background information for the required Medicare paperwork. The total take was more than $1.6 million. The prosecution was the result of an investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation in San Francisco and Office of the Inspector General, Department of Health and Human Services in Los Angeles. 52-year-old Charles Okoye, a Los Angeles County physician and resident of Carson, California, pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud by writing prescriptions for unneeded durable medical equipment. His scheme led to more than $1.7 million in fraudulent billing. The physician admitted in federal court that he wrote prescriptions for medically unnecessary DME for patients referred to him through Adelco Medical Distributors Incorporated, a Gardena-based DME supply company. Adelco recruited Medicare beneficiaries and took them to see Okoye, who would issue DME prescriptions after giving the patients a single cursory examination. Adelco then billed Medicare for providing the DME, which the beneficiaries did not want and often never used. In return for these referrals, Okoye received illegal kickbacks for every DME prescription from Adelco's owner. Okoye also fraudulently billed Medicare more than $50,000 for services he claimed to have provided to the patients who received unnecessary prescriptions. The Adelco indictment charges for other defendants three of whom have previously pleaded guilty. The final defendant is currently a fugitive. In his plea agreement, Okoy also admitted that he engaged in a similar unlawful arrangement with another DME company, Esteem Medical Supply, in Englewood. Okoy is scheduled to be sentenced in federal court on December 8th. He faces a statutory maximum sentence of 10 years in federal prison. Okoye has agreed that the California Medical Board can revoke his license to practice medicine. The investigation was conducted by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And in medical news, a surprising new study says that states where so-called medical marijuana is legal report a 25% reduction in opioid fatalities. And researchers are not sure why. California, Oregon, and Washington first legalized medical marijuana before 1999, with 10 more following suit between then and 2010, the time period of the analysis. Another 10 states and Washington, D.C., adopted similar laws since 2010. The study was reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, August 2014, Internal Medicine Issue. Researchers from the Philadelphia Veterans Affairs Medical Center and the University of Pennsylvania used state-level death certificate data for all 50 states between 1999 and 2010. In states with a medical marijuana law, overdose deaths from opioids like morphine, Oxycodone and heroin decreased by an average of 20% after one year, 25% by two years, and up to 33% by years 5 and 6 compared to what would have been expected. Meanwhile, opioid overdose deaths across the country increased dramatically. From over 4,000 in 1999 to nearly 17,000 in 2010, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Three of every four of those deaths involve prescription pain medications. Of those who die from prescription opioid overdoses, 60% have a legitimate prescription from a single doctor. The report notes that medical marijuana, where legal, is most often approved for treating pain conditions, making it an option in addition to or instead of prescription painkillers. But the full scope of risks and benefits of medical marijuana is still unknown. More studies about the risks and benefits of medical marijuana are needed to help guide clinical practice. An accompanying commentary in the journal said, that generally healthcare providers feel very strongly that medical marijuana may not be the way to go. There is the risk of smoke, the worry about whether there is a carcinogenic property, and there may be risk that legal medical marijuana will make the drug more accessible for children and smoking may impair driving or carry other risks. But, If legalizing medical marijuana does help tackle the problem of painkiller deaths, that will be very significant. The efforts states currently make to combat these deaths, like prescription monitoring programs, have been relatively ineffectual. Marijuana, which is not itself without risks, is arguably less addictive and almost impossible to overdose compared to opioids. And in other news, we are saddened to report the death of several long-term members of the workers' compensation community. Retired workers' compensation judge Samuel L. Sosna Jr. passed away after a long battle with cancer. Judge Sosna was retired as a workers' compensation administrative law judge in the Van Nuys District office. His retirement was announced in April 2009. He was the past presiding judge of the Pasadena District Office from 1990 to 1996. He was well-liked and well-respected during his tenure as an attorney and as a workers' compensation judge. He received his undergraduate degree from Stanford University and his law degree from the University of California, Los Angeles. He was admitted to California Bar in January 14, 1959. Also, Jack Paul Cosden, the founding partner of the applicant's firm of Cosden, Fields, Sherry & Katz in Van Nuys, California, passed away on Sunday, August 24. According to a tribute on the State Bar website, Jack Cosden was born in 1931 and grew up in Chicago. He attended UCLA for both his undergraduate and his law degrees. He was admitted to the California State Bar in 1955. Jack Cosden dedicated his professional life to securing the rights of injured workers, which he championed in the courtrooms, in the classroom, and through broadcast media. Jack strongly supported workers' union rights, serving as a founding member and legal advisor to the Valley Labor Political Education Council, and he co-hosted the Union Voice radio program. Jack's passion for politics led him to work on numerous political campaigns for Democratic candidates throughout his career. He supported such notable leaders as Tom Bradley, Bill Lockyer, Hilda Solis, Loretta Sanchez, and Richard Katz, among many others. He has served in leadership positions for such organizations as the Red Cross, Child Guidance Clinic, and Valley Hillel. Jack lectured in law at UCLA the University of West Los Angeles, and L.A. Trade Tech. He was a partner in the firm of Levy, Cosden & Woods before heading the firm of Cosden & Sigel, which later became Cosden, Fields, Sherry & Katz, where he remained senior partner until his recent retirement. He dedicated almost 60 years in the field of workers' compensation law. While Jack's professional achievements are many, his greatest pride comes in the successes of his children, Shelley, Carrie, Kenton, David, and Frank, who are all accomplished professionals in their own right. He lived in Burbank, California, with his wife, Helen Griffin. We must also report that workers' compensation judge Dennis Stotch from the Riverside WCAB passed away on August 7 in Norco, California. Judge Stotch graduated from Elmwood Park High School in 1962. He enlisted in the U.S. Air Force where he served as a para-rescue specialist during the Vietnam era. He went on to undergraduate studies at California State Polytechnic University and then law school at the University of Laverne. He became an attorney in 1979 and later served as a workers' compensation judge in Southern California. He retired in 2010 after 25 years of service. Judge Stock is survived by his sister, Mary Ann Carr, from San Diego, and brother, William Stotch, of Streamwood, Illinois. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the Work Comp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarrin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.